Have you ever had to prove that you are who you say you are? Basically, have you ever had to answer the question, who are you? And, and many of us, uh, we've, we've had that situation before. Who's been through TSA, right? You've been there through TSA? Have you had maybe this uncomfortable conversation that began with the phrase, license and registration, please? Oh. But we, we use our, our government-issued ID to prove, oftentimes, that we are who we say we are. But there was one day that Andrew had no such government-issued ID on him. And I was in college. I went out for a run quite late at night because um, when you're in college, right, once the homework is done and the job is over and you're not planning on getting any sleep anyways, right? College is just four years of no sleep and all kinds of, so much caffeine. But long story short, I decided the healthy choice, I would go for a jog. So I put on my very trendy, cool, all black running suit. And it was chilly, so I may have had a ski cap to go with it. And I went running in the neighborhood. And as I'm running in the neighborhood, I saw this police car like drive past me. And he was going really, really, really fast. And then he went really, really slow. And then he just kept driving. I said, huh, that's weird. And I was running until all of a sudden, like the world erupts in red and blue. And no joke, this police officer drives up. There's no sirens on because it's late at night. But he mounts the curb gets out of the car and is like walking towards me. And, and in my fight or flight moment, I turn around behind me and I see that there is another car that has done the same thing. There's another officer and they're, they're both trying to corner me here. And the good news is um, that this is not the story of the night that your pastor spent in jail. This is <laughs> the story where I learned a lesson. So this police officer walks up to me and turns out they were looking for someone who fit my description in the neighborhood. So devilishly handsome, apparently, is what <laughs> they were out looking for. And, and they said, you know, do you have any ID on you? And I didn't. Like, I just had my cell phone and my tunes and my earbuds in. I was out for a run. And, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do until finally, this might be one of the most millennial moments of my life, I, I pulled out my cell phone and said, well, I've got my social media profile. And I can show you and prove who I am, because like I'm logged in. This is me. So I'm either you know, someone who wasn't smart enough to like, carry what he needed with him, or I am like the most clever like, uh, identity thief that exists, because I had a whole like, social media profile set up to prove to the officer that I was. No, so I was. So they, they let me go. Um, we're all good. I survived. Thank you for being worried about me for a minute. But what's the question? Who are you? And sometimes we prove. Sometimes uh, we show. It is revealed about who we are when we're in difficult circumstances. What happens when you take an orange and you put it under pressure? You squeeze it, you press on it, you put it under pressure, what do you get? Juice. What kind of juice? Orange juice. Do you get apple juice if you squeeze an orange? No. 
You do it to a lemon, you get lemon juice. You do it to an apple, you get cider or, you know, whatever. Like, so I believe that the same thing is true about people. That when we are under pressure, there are things that bubble up in our heart. There are things that are revealed about us. When you get the squeeze put on you, the pressure, what comes out can show us sometimes what's inside. And, and I'm not saying that's who we are all the time, because like, I'm, I'm not a panicked you know, fight or flight individual all the time. But when I am upset, when I have my back against the wall, when I don't know the solution, or in the terrible situation of maybe when I have slow internet, there are things that I learn about myself that aren't all that great. And I think a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Because oftentimes difficult situations show us things about ourselves that wouldn't have come about otherwise. And maybe we can do something with that information. Maybe there's a path forward based on that. Well, here we are. We are in uh, week number one of our series called The Suffering Servant. Um, and, and the suffering servant is actually not a phrase that you will find in the book of Matthew, uh, but it's actually from a passage in Isaiah and a prophecy that was written about Jesus hundreds of years before he even came. And in Isaiah chapter 53, this, this long poem that describes what this suffering servant would be like. And because we think that this is something that Matthew had in the back of his mind as he was writing the story of Jesus' arrest, of his crucifixion, and some of the, the darkest moments of the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we're about to head into in chapters 26 and 27, Matthew was uploading this story from the Old Testament. So I will, I will quote the, uh, the Andrew uh, Standard Version, which is somewhere of a mix between KJV, NIV, and everything that I memorized growing up. But essentially, in Isaiah 53, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. It says that like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open up his mouth. And maybe we'll see how some of those elements of that poem become true in the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we invite your spirit to speak to us, to change us, to work in us. Please, Jesus, show us who you would like us to be. Use difficult circumstances to shape our hearts. Jesus, help us be the right kind of people when we are under pressure. We trust you. We love you. Amen. Amen. Isaiah, uh, not Isaiah, Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. So if you remember last week, right, we were in T-minus 12 hours left in 
Jesus' life, and he was praying in the garden, and then Judas showed up with the people from the high priests that were trying to arrest Jesus. They succeeded, right? And they're taking him back to be tried. And spoiler alert, there's a big, huge thing behind me that is a center point of the Christian faith. Jesus is going to die. He's going to die on a Roman cross, and that's dark. That's sad. That's terrible. And, and I think as we go through some of these verses, this gives us a moment to pause and to really let that sink in. Because it is really easy. Many of us have like cross necklaces, right? Like our logo is a nice little Dallas church cross. And sometimes that is disconnected for us from the reality of what it meant in that day. And, and sometimes, and, and what we'll dive into in, in these passages in 26 and 27, um, is that there is a lot of space in the Christian faith for suffering, for a conception of the effects of evil in the world. And there are, there are some people, maybe you've had this experience before, where you come to church and, and you are in a tough spot. And the words that we are singing, which are very upbeat and very happy, maybe you come to church, we've done the song like, oh, happy day, like we're doing that, we're jamming out, and what's inside your heart is lament, is sadness. It's something that says, God, are you still with me? Because the pressure is on me in my life. And I don't know what to do with it. But to, but to really follow Jesus and to really be honest with the scriptures, there is so many resources that, that the tradition of Christianity would have to offer us in difficult circumstances and to endure suffering. And it would be a disservice to us to ignore that, to leave all that on the bookshelf, to never pull it out. So here we are in a difficult night for Jesus. He's arrested and he's in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, I will give you an insight into Andrew's color code of highlights and the Bible, is that I color code in gray the bad guys and the things that like bad guys do or like are not good, the sins. That's what I color code like that. So here's the deal though, why is the high priest color-coded as the bad guy in this situation? That's not supposed to be the case, right? Because if we've, if we've read the Bible or if we were like, you know, to put on the clothes of first century Jewish people, the high priest is supposed to be the good guy. And Caiaphas, as the corrupt high priest, who's, he's a scary dude. You did not want to mess with him. He was more mafia than he was like the religious leader. And one, one Bible teacher pointed it out to me like this. Jesus has been hanging out with and confronting the Pharisees for three years. And he goes with Caiaphas and the high priests and the Sadducees in Jerusalem for one week. And they're like, we've had enough of him. We're dealing with this. And so the, the high priest being the bad guy in this situation, like that's like the guy who's wearing the S on his chest with a red cape, walks in and robs the bank. 
That's not supposed to happen. So the high priest has called in Jesus, and Peter is following him at a distance. He's following Jesus, right, to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. So the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Because in order to put someone to death in the Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses that agreed on something. Because in the day before, dash cam footage or smartphones or posts on social media to prove who you are, like you had to corroborate it with people's stories. And it's interesting to me because the Greek word for witness is the word where we get martyr. Because in our language, when we say a martyr, we're talking about someone who dies for a cause that they believe in. And, and the biblical sense of the word is someone who tells the story of what they've seen. Someone who is committed to that story of what they've seen. Someone who will stand by it. And these guys, are they're fake martyrs. They're pseudo-martyrs. They're telling false testimony about Jesus. And, and the Sanhedrin, they could not find two that would agree, even though many false witnesses came forwards. So they've already decided the way this trial is supposed to play out. The verdict is already in. They're just like going through the motions to try to condemn Jesus. And finally, they find two people who come forward and, and they finally get two people that agree on each other. We got him. He says that this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now think about that for a second. Did Jesus say that? Did Jesus say, I will rebuild, I will destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days? And what I, what I kind of see is some indecision and the couple people going, yes. And what was really fun was at the 9 o'clock service, I saw people doing like this and this and like everybody disagreeing with each other. It's close. It's actually not quite what Jesus said because Jesus said that they will destroy the temple and that he will rebuild it in three days. And you're like, Andrew, what does this have to do with me? Well, what's the temple, guys? It's his body, yes. And the temple is the place where God meets with humans. And what's the high priest's job in the temple? He's supposed to be the most holy, the most priestly. He's supposed to be the most set apart from all of the yuck in the world. And then he's supposed to be the one who can go into the holy of holies and he can stand face to face with God. What's Caiaphas doing right now? He's face to face with Jesus. And Jesus says that, that the temple, the place where humanity and God can be at peace and interact will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And he's talking about the cross. He's talking about resurrection. And so the high priest stood up and he said to Jesus, he says, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, which 
this is like the most emphatic, all, like all the weight and power that he could possibly invoke to put on Jesus. He's like, I need you to say something. And he says, I charge you, tell me if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is the moment where Jesus looks at him and he does the like, you can't handle the truth. He says, you said it, not me. You said. But I tell you, and this is the mic drop moment. Like if we were, if we're reading this with first century Jewish eyes, this is when everybody like does a gasp or does the like, oh, snap. Because Jesus throws this back in his face and he says, but I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that sounds weird to us, right? None of us got here on a cloud today, right? Nobody drove a Nissan cloud or something like that. We all like traveled in cars because we're normal humans. But here's the thing about biblical poetry. Sometimes if you see it, you can, you can get it. Like sometimes when I see pictures of it, then I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So I've got, I've got a picture here from the Bible Project uploading what Jesus is talking about. And Tyler's going to pull it up for me, right? The Bible Project. You got this. I believe in you. Thank you. Everybody give Tyler a round of applause. That was great. Way to go. Way to go. So when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's uploading this passage from Daniel 7. Because in Daniel 7, um, Daniel sees this vision. And he sees this throne. And despite what this picture would show you, the throne, when Daniel sees it, is empty. And it's that God has taken everything that's wrong in the world, he has put it right. There were these like beasts and monsters and scary stuff coming all over the place. And God puts it all right. And he's got a throne that is next to him so that he can share his rule. And then that is a hearkening back to in Genesis chapter 1 when God makes Adam and Eve. And he says, you are humans and I will give you my image and you will have dominion. You will have rule and reign over planet Earth. You will have agency and the ability to take care of and to create things. How many of us, have you created something before? You made something with your hands? We are powerful creatures. Humans are. Have you ever destroyed something? And I won't make you raise your hand. Have you ever destroyed a relationship? Have you ever destroyed a reputation? Have you seen the effects that humans have to do stuff like that? God gave us so much potential, but the throne is empty because no human can stay faithful. Because what happens to us when we're squeezed? What happens to us when the pressure is on? Is there's all kinds of embarrassing, gross, and icky stuff that we find. And that's the story of humanity. So here Daniel is. He's looking at this throne. And finally there is somebody. And he's called the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is able to come up and to rule with God, to sit down on the throne. And the Son of Man is riding on the clouds. i got one more picture that we show. And so the Son of Man is not just human. 
but he is the God-human. So Caiaphas looks Jesus in the face and says, tell me if you're the son of God or not. And Jesus says, well, I'm at least the son of man. This is who I am. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See now that you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And the Sanhedrin they decide, they answer, they say, he deserves death. And then they spat in his face, and they beat him, and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? That's terrible. That's, that's dark. That's cruel. Humans are capable of a lot of destruction. And this situation, it says a lot about who Jesus is, but doesn't this say a little bit more about who they are? There was one time when I was a young youth pastor, and I had a confrontation with a volunteer. We were arguing, and then I got called into the pastor's office. And I thought I was going to get it, guys. Like, I was like, I am in trouble. I am, this is not going to go well for me. And I sit down with the pastor, and... And he looks me in the eye and says, you know what, Andrew, the way that they're responding in this situation, it sure says a lot more about them than it does about you. And there are some times, like if we're going to image Jesus, like there are times where what is going on around us, the situations that we find ourselves in, it's not that God is saying that it's okay, but it might be saying that this is an opportunity for us to stay faithful, trust the story, like like live the life that Jesus lived under pressure and be okay with the fact that what we see happening around us or maybe even some of what we're experiencing says a lot more about them than it says about us. Well, let's talk about someone else who's under pressure. So Jesus is in uh, Caiaphas's house and Peter is in the courtyard. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. So Jesus has just been like face to face with the high priest, the powerful person. And Peter comes face to face with the janitor. And with all the pressure that she's got, she puts on him and says, hey, wait, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter denies it in front of everybody. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were with him, she said, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. He says, I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them since your accent gives you away. Because in Galilee, it was like the first century equivalent of a redneck accent. And Peter's words keep saying, no, I don't know Jesus. No, I don't know the guy. I'm not connected to him. Which, think about that. Like, Peter's supposed to be a witness to the fact that he knows Jesus. To the fact that Jesus is working in his life. So who's being the false witness in this moment? And Peter says, no, I don't even know the guy. And then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. He said, I don't know the man. 
and immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter talked a big game. And I think Peter really wanted to be Jesus' most faithful disciple. I think he really did, because he said, he looked Jesus in the eye, he said, when everyone else deserts you, I will stand with you. And I think that's why Peter is in the, the temple courts right there. Like he's in the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas' house. Because he was trying to stay faithful with Jesus, but what happens when the pressure is on? He caves. What comes out? It's embarrassing. It's not what Peter was hoping would be inside him. And is there an encouragement in there for us? Because maybe you have been in the difficult situation when the pressure is on you and what bubbles up? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's disappointment. The Bible says that out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. Do you know how many stupid things Andrew has said in his life? That I wish, like, I'm like, I wish I could just grab the words and just put them back in and go back. And, and Peter's, Peter's wrecked by this. He goes out and he cries. And then we've got another person where the pressure is on. And we've got, we've got Judas. And Judas wasn't trying to stay faithful like Peter was. Maybe Judas lost faith. Maybe he was disappointed in some of what he saw Jesus doing. Maybe he saw a way out. Maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand. And he said, well, if I sell him out and he's going to get arrested, then Jesus finally has to like pick up the sword and go to battle and be the type of Messiah that I want him to be. I don't know what's going on in Judas' heart. But he sells out Jesus. And he doesn't even like go on a joyride with the 30 pieces of silver, like go spend it all. He doesn't get to do anything with it. He's so broken up that he tries to take it back to the high priests. He says, I'm sorry. I realized that what I did was wrong, that who I was when the pressure was on was no good. And there is no forgiveness for him from the high priests. They say, this is your problem. You get to deal with it. And so he throws the money back to them, and then Judas goes and hangs himself because he's so overwhelmed. He gives in to despair. Now, as I think about the two stories of Peter and Judas, and we're going to maybe fast forward. So Judas gives in to despair, and it's over. But Peter betrays and denies Jesus. And what happens to him? Well, at the resurrection, when Jesus rises from the dead, Peter and John are in a foot race to see who's going to get to the tomb first. Because Peter is able to recover from this setback. Peter's able to recognize, okay, what was in my heart in that moment, who I became when I was under pressure, that was no good. And then later, Jesus has a way to reinstate Peter. And he says, Peter, they're sitting around a fire, just like Peter was sitting around a fire with this servant girl in the temple courts. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. 
Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And at that moment, Peter kind of gets it, and he goes, oh, I know something else that happened three times. And, and that, that moment, that setback, is the thing that kind of sets Peter up for a comeback. Because in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he's the one who has the courage to stand in front of 3,000 people of Israel and not too long after this same incident be like, by the way, guys, you killed Jesus. That was a bad move, but he's alive now, so you need to like, believe in him, get baptized. And they baptized 3,000 people that day. That's some guts. Peter moves on. He's able to do something. And I wonder if God, he can do that. If when we are under pressure, we see things that we don't like, we see opportunities for God to sand some rough edges off of our hearts. There's a moment this week, um, so from my discipleship group, um, I had my I will statement is that. I have a little sticky note on my computer and and the prayer that I'm going to repeat to myself is, Jesus, I know what you're doing. I know that you know what you're doing. And I'm willing to accept that. And, and that's, my, that's my prayer that I've been trying to live in. And that, that seems to me very reminiscent of um, a prayer that Jesus prayed in a garden where he said, God, I wish you would have a different plan. But if this is the way and you're doing something, I'm willing to accept that. And then one day this week, I just had a terrible day. Like, like stuff just kept hitting my way. I was trying to, I was like, I'm trying to make dinner for my family and I can't find the thing. I'm trying to be one of those good husbands that has like dinner ready for Joe when she walks in the door. And I'm like, I'm trying to do nice things for people. But the world just didn't seem to cooperate. And I sat down at my computer and staring me right in the face. Jesus knows what he's doing. I'm willing to accept that. And that is not what was bubbling up inside of me when I was under pressure. But that was the story I, I chose. I was like, I want to live in light of that. And so here's the challenge that I think we can take from this. Because this is, this is a passage. Um, our application is not, like, go get arrested by high priests. Like, that's, that's not what we're supposed to do with this. So what are we supposed to do with this? What does this story teach us about God and how he works? What does this story teach us about people and who we are and how we work and maybe who God is creating us to be? And I think the lesson here is to ask the question, who am I really when the pressure's on? Am I going to walk in the way of Jesus, who stays faithful when the pressure's on? He says, God, you know what you're doing. I'm willing to accept that. Because the other characters in the story, who are they when the pressure's on? Caiaphas, Peter, Judas. And I know which one of those I want to be. And so maybe you're going to craft an I will statement. Maybe you're going to have a little prayer you repeat to yourself this week. 
Maybe God has shown you in a situation where you are under pressure some rough edges that he wants to sand off. And I'll let that be between you and him. As we enter into a time of communion, as we sing songs, this is a good time to think. It's a good time to engage in what could be called listening prayer, where we open our heart and say, God, what would you have to tell me? And if you don't get any, you know, angelic appearance in the middle of all of that, that's okay. God's still working on you. Let's pray. Father God, we invite your spirit to change us, to grow us. God, we pray for the power to be faithful and to be your people even when we are under pressure. God, we invite you to work on us. We ask you to give us hope. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.